Well, amen. Thank you so much, Dr. T. And thank you so much for being here. I know many of you have other tasks that you could be doing, other tests for which you could be studying, papers that you could be turning in. And thank you for taking uh, your time out this morning to come and hear the word of the Lord. I've always tried to make it my practice throughout my life to be very transparent. I've always tried to be a man of truth and a man who always tells the truth, even whenever it's maybe uh, not the best in my best interest to do so. And so, as Dr. Patterson has asked me to speak today, I want to be very transparent with many of you. I find the work of evangelism a difficult thing to do. Have you felt that before? Maybe in your case, it's all the memorization, maybe the Bible verses that you must memorize, maybe it's the gospel presentations that you must memorize. Some of you find evangelism difficult because you have to start the conversation, you have to transition a conversation from talking about anything to something else. In fact, I remember going to the hospital to see my pastor, Dr. Charles Stewart, when you remember he had a, a, a little a stroke, a mini stroke here when he was preaching, and I was with Dr. Kiker, and we got on the elevator, and there on the elevator, a, a male lady, the United States Postal Service uh, uh, mail lady came on the uh, elevator with us. And I knew we just had a few floors to be able to talk about the gospel. And so I went right into the gospel and I was thinking, how can I do this? It was a difficult task. But I said, ma'am, I see you work for the United States Postal Service. And she said, yes, I do. And I said, so that means you deliver messages for people, don't you? And she says, well, in fact, yes, I do. And I said, do you know I do the same thing? Can I share with you the message that God's given to me or given me to share with you today? And I thought that was a pretty good transition until Kiker goes, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever heard. And totally, there was no recovering from that. It was a difficult thing. Totally messed up that witnessing encounter. So be, if you go, that, the lesson for that story is, if you go with Kiker, don't be cheesy, okay? <laughs> but nevertheless, maybe you find those transitions starting from nothing to going to something difficult for you. I don't know what it is that's difficult for you, but I have found that evangelism is a difficult task because every time I talk to a lost sinner, no matter the age, no matter the background, no matter the gender, no matter how much they know about God or how much they don't know about God, I found that the most difficult task about evangelism is the hardened heart of a sinner. And trying to break through with the gospel message, to have them come to a point where they repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ alone, and confess Him with their mouth, Jesus is Lord do you know, I believe that's the most difficult thing about evangelism. As difficult as transitions, as difficult as memorization is, that's the most difficult thing in evangelism. And I think the Lord Jesus has something to say about that in our text today. And so if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And in our text today, we're going to see what Jesus says about this difficult task of the gospel and gospeling and evangelism and entering into the kingdom of God. Yesterday, our president was sharing the great news about how in Georgia this past week, a 70-year-old man that no one in the world would believe would come to faith in Christ. They'd prayed, they'd witnessed to him, and yet this weekend, the power of God broke through that hardened heart of his, of his soul, and he received the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do you know anybody like that? Anybody that in your mind you would say it is impossible. I know God can do all things, but it's impossible for that person to come to faith in Christ. I've prayed. I've witnessed enough. Do you know that back in the 1950s, there was a very well-known steer wrestler and rodeo clown? Now, some of you may not have a background for that, but you better because we're here in Fort Worth. That's where the South and the West begins, and the West begins, and there's rodeos. And, and there was a very well-known steer wrestler and rodeo clown in that business in the 1950s by the name of Ken Bowen. Ken Bowen. Some of you may have heard of him. He was in Arkansas. And those in the Fort Smith, Arkansas area knew of Ken Bowen. They would go and watch him at the rodeo, and they knew that he was a hard man. In fact, whenever the evangelists would come into a town, they would always try to go to Ken Bowen's farm, and they would try to witness to him, and they'd shut him down. He'd shut them down just like that. No one, after praying and witnessing, no one in the world believed that Ken Bowen would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, there are many Ken Bowens today. The most difficult thing in the world is a sinner's heart that's hardened. And what we see in our text today is that there's actually something known as, and our philosophy guys are here, so you all correct me on this if I'm wrong, but actually in the text, Jesus talks about the impossible possibility of entering the kingdom of God. The impossible possibility of entering the kingdom of God. If you would, please follow with me in the text as we begin reading in verse number 13. The Bible says, And then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He then took him up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he, sent, uh, excuse me, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then... Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, One thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard, how Difficult it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly 
astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, see, we've left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers, or sisters or father or mother, or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, and sisters and mothers, children and lands. By the way with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first in this passage of scripture we have three pericopes that are put together but to really get the gist of what Jesus is teaching here, you must look at all of them together. We have the first pericope, that is chapters, uh, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, in which Jesus has uh, these children who are denied access to him. So there's children who are denied access to Jesus by his own disciples. We then have in verses 17 through 22, we have not children who are denied access to Jesus, but we have a man who denies Jesus' invitation. And then finally, in verses 23 through 31, we have the disciples who have denied everything for Jesus. Children who are denied access to Jesus, a rich man who denies the invitation of Jesus, and 12 disciples who've denied all for Jesus. The Bible says in verse 13 that they, the parents probably, maybe uh, uh, husbands and wives, began to bring little children, padilla, the small little children under the age of 12. They would bring them to him that he might touch them. But the disciples, they rebuke these parents or these ones who bring these children to them. And when Jesus sees it, he is greatly displeased. And he says, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. For as such is the kingdom of heaven. And assuredly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child will by no means enter it. And then he began to take him up in his hands and his arms. And he blessed them, the Bible says. Jesus says, unless you come into the kingdom of God by receiving it like a child, you'll by no means enter into it. What does this mean if you take or receive the kingdom of God like a child? In those days, children were really known as one of the least portions of the society. Women, of course, you know, had a different way, and they were maybe right above children. But children, they were many times, uh, they got in the way of things, people would think. And they were the least of the society. Some people have said, well, maybe what this means is Jesus is saying, unless you come like a little child who is pure, a little child that is innocent, unless you come like that, you cannot receive the kingdom of God. But we know that's not the case. Because none of us are pure and innocent. In fact, we are sinful and selfish. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And even little children themselves, 
They have a sin nature. So this can't be what Jesus means when he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will by no means enter it. What does he mean here? Well, more than likely, we just need to look and see what's going on. There are people who are bringing to Jesus little children. These little children have nothing to offer Jesus. There's no merit. And in fact, in that culture, little children are, as I said, they're the lowest part of the society. Uh, They're not as important as the rich. They're not as important as men. They're pushed down to the bottom parts of the society. And so when they are brought to Jesus, they are brought to Jesus with no clout. They are brought to Jesus with no claims. And they are brought to Jesus for him to bless them. And in the same way, Jesus, I believe, is teaching That the only way anyone comes into the kingdom of God, the only way anyone receives the kingdom of God is if they come like those children were coming to Jesus. No merit on their own. They had nothing to offer Jesus. And in fact, if you've ever repented of your sins, you realize that's exactly what you've done when you came to Jesus. You had nothing to offer Jesus. There's nothing you could offer that he needed, was in need of, because God has everything. And so Jesus says, you must be like a little child. Otherwise, guess what? It's an impossible thing for you to receive the kingdom of God. Moving on from children who are denied access to Jesus, I want you to move on and to look in the text beginning in verse 17. At one who denies the invitation... Of Jesus. The Bible says when this ends, when Jesus finishes his blessing of these children, he goes out and it's as if he is going out on the road, beginning on a journey, and as he's making his way out, there's one who comes eagerly and approaches him. In fact, this one comes, and the Bible explains in Mark that he is running. It says that he is running and he kneels before Jesus and he asks him, A question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in our society, you can look on uh, talk shows, you can look on blogs, you can listen to the radio. There are many people today who in principle would say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. They may not believe he was the savior of the world, but they would say he is a good teacher. So in our society, to hear that Jesus is a good teacher, that doesn't really mean anything to us. But actually, in the first century sources and before, rabbis were never called good teacher. In fact, there's almost virtually no parallel in the Jewish sources where a teacher is called good And Jesus is approached by this wonderful, extraordinary display of respect. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus had just said that for you to receive the kingdom of God, you cannot give anything to God to receive it. You must go with no clout, with no claim, with no merit of your own. Yet this man comes and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What does he mean by eternal life? It's the same thing that Jesus means throughout this entire passage about receiving the kingdom of God. It means to set up the authority of God in one's heart on this earth. 
And so you have life here and you are governed by the authority of God here in this earth. But you are also governed by the authority of God in the hereafter, a place called heaven. So it's not just some place we go when we die, although it includes that. It's what we do and how we live our lives here. And he says, Jesus, how might I inherit eternal life? Jesus answers to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, if you have your Greek New Testament, you'll notice that all the translations translate this phrase this way. Why do you call me good? Who, uh, excuse me, who, I'm sorry, excuse me, let me go back. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for one, that is God. But in the Greek text, it actually, there's a little bit of a word word change, and there's an emphasis that Jesus places on me. It's not why do you call me good, but really, if you take it in the word order, there's an emphasis on the may. Why me do you call good? There is no one that is good but God. And of course, we know the Old Testament teaches there is none good. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. But all throughout the scriptures, we find in Ezra 3.11, Chronicles 16.34, Psalm 118.1, Psalm 145.9. The Bible says things like this. Give praise to the Lord. Maybe you can help me. Give praise to the Lord for he is good. He's the one who is good. And of course, Jesus is bringing attention to the righteous goodness of God. But I wonder if it's not something else that Jesus is bringing attention to. Some people would see this, and when you hear this just upon reading it, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Is Jesus saying that he's not good? No. In fact, we know Jesus was good. Friends, I believe what Jesus is saying is not just pointing to God as the one who is good, but I think that as he does in Mark chapter 2, he's disclosing the fact and asking the man, will you confess that I am not just good, but I am God? Look at what he says. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. We know of those commandments as a corpus that we call commonly the Ten Commandments. Do not, Jesus says, commit adultery. Do not have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Do not murder. Do not take the innocent's life. Do not steal. Don't take what's not yours. Don't bear false witness. Don't say someone did something that they didn't. Or don't say someone didn't do something that they did. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. This one's a little tricky here because really there's no real Ten Commandment that says you shall not defraud. Some commentators have said, well, this do not defraud is really meant to, to speak to him because perhaps he got his wealth on the backs of the poor. Others have said, no, this is not directed to him specifically, but rather this is probably talking about Jesus' commandment in Mark, Matthew chapter 16 that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you'll treat your neighbors as yourself. Yet many scholars and most commentators would say that, no, this is a different way of Jesus inserting, as it were, the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not take what is not, desire what is not yours and take what is not yours. And then 
honor your father and your mother. We have some children here. My own children are here. Honor your father and mother. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't simply mean obey your father and mother, although it does mean that. It's more than that. My kids, that means you do have to obey me, okay? You see, obedience is one thing, but friends, you can obey your parents without honoring them. If they tell you to do something, the spirit in which you respond to them will show whether or not you honor them or not. Not just mere obedience. So it is obedience, but it's much more than that. And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Notice he doesn't say to keep the commandments in order to do this. He says, you know the commandments. The man comes back and he answers and he says to him, teacher. Did you see how the man first of all approaches Jesus? you remember what he calls him? Good teacher. But when Jesus corrects him and says, why are you calling me good? There's none one good but God. Giving him, I believe, an opportunity to confess Jesus is God. He comes back and he says, okay, you're just a teacher. You're not God. That goes on to say, and all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, this doesn't mean that from a baby he kept all of these commandments. This is an idiom that means that from his 12th year at his bar mitzvah, the day that he became a son of the covenant, from that day forward, when he took upon himself as a son of the covenant, the yoke of the commandments, he has kept these things all since his youth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, man, <laughs> I think of what I've done since I was 12 years old. I got saved when I was seven. He is in a lot better shape than I am, and, I, and he wasn't even saved yet. And I was even saved at that time. And I don't know if you've ever read this with frustration, thinking, how in the world did he keep all of those commandments? This is, in fact, a part of the corpus of the Ten Commandments, as I said a moment ago. And I know I'm an evangelist, and I know that you all think I'm fast and loose with numbers, but I can count to ten. And I don't know about you, but let's just count these. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. By my count, that's six. Do you know that he left four commandments out? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't Jesus give all the commandments? And friends, as we look at the commandments he left out, do you know what all four of those commandments relate to? God. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Inviting him to confess Jesus is God. And Jesus, just like he does in Mark chapter 2, when he knows what the scribes are thinking, he knows the commandments this young man has kept, and he knows the commandments that this young man has broken. And guess which ones he had broken? You shall not have any other gods. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. And you shall rest on the Sabbath just as the Lord your God rested on the Sabbath. Friends, it's not the fact that he has a problem with a God. He does have a God. He's just got the wrong God. And so here we see in the text, he says, all these things I've kept from my youth. The Bible then gets very personal and maybe in your own mind's eyes you see this man bowing before Jesus as Jesus is setting out on his journey you can see the deep loving eyes of Jesus as the text says and Jesus looked upon him 
and loved him. He loved him and he said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. In his commentary in Matthew, uh, John Broadus actually says that Jesus is not giving a new commandment to everyone, but rather a new motive, supreme devotion to Christ. Some people have written this and they've written books about how we need to go into extreme poverty and we need to change our lifestyle in a radical kind of way. Maybe some people think, well, everybody has to sell all that they have and sell their houses and give to the poor. Let me tell you, there is a responsibility that we have with the poor. But Jesus said this, the poor, even though we have a responsibility and we're to take care of the poor, and you should, and if you're not, shame on you. Shame on me if we, I don't. But Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. The Bible is not telling us that we all have to sell everything and we all have to give everything to the poor. But what it is saying is you have to have supreme devotion to Christ. You say, why in the world can that not be for all of us? Because some of you don't have anything to sell. You already sold everything to come here. So you can't keep on doing that. Some of you, even before you came to Christ, you didn't have anything. And think of a child. Can a child place his or her faith in Jesus Christ? I did at the age of seven, and let me tell you, I didn't have anything to offer the Lord. So he's saying, I want you to have a supreme devotion unto me. Empty yourself like a child of all that you have. Take away all of the merit. Come, take up the cross and follow me. It kind of sounds like repent. Stop trying to satisfy God with your good works. And believe in Jesus Christ alone. Follow him. The Bible says the response to this young man, by this young man though in verse 22. But he was sad at his word. Literally his face was downcast. And went away sorrowfully for he had great possessions. If I might just insert a word here to help you in your evangelism. There may be some of you here today that... Maybe you evangelize, and I thank God for that. We thank God for that. But you tell the good news of Jesus Christ, but you're afraid of getting in the way of the Holy Spirit because you're afraid you may offer salvation to someone who God doesn't want to be saved. Or maybe you give a general, nonspecific invitation and say, Jesus died for sinners. Let me tell you something. Jesus had no problem loving this man and telling him, you can come and follow me. And he even resisted that. Friends, let me tell you something. You don't have to be general, God saves sinners. You can say, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. And if you will come and follow him, you can do that. And friends, let me tell you something. Leave the salvation stuff up to God. You follow the practice of the master evangelist. As the man makes his way away, saddened, for he had great possessions. Jesus, who was going on a journey, is now left there with his 12 disciples. And verse 23 says, Then Jesus looked around, and he saw his disciples. At first he looked at the young man, but now he looks and he sees those who have been left to take up the cross and follow him. And probably thinking... And knowing what they were thinking, he explains to them what has just happened. 
how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Upon saying this, the Bible says his disciples were astonished. They marveled. They were in wonder. And you may wonder, why in the world were they in such wonder? We, we all know that riches have a way of pulling you away from what God wants you to do. But in the Jewish culture, and unfortunately, in the prosperity culture of America, we know exactly why they were amazed. You see, people think that if you have wealth, if you have health, you have the blessing of God. But if you have infirmity, if you have illness, if you are in extreme poverty, God must be judging you for something. In fact, let me just ask you a question and ask it this way. How many of you, when you think of going to heaven, have y'all ever done that before? Anybody ever thought about going to heaven before? How many of y'all thought about going to heaven and going to heaven and staying in a shack or a little lean-to or, you know, just having just one meal a day and it's porridge or something like that, you know? Do you, is that your view of heaven? No, you think you're going to be in a mansion, you know. You're going to be there and you're going to enjoy. So all of these things are going into mind. And so the disciples, when Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to go into heaven, they're astonished at this saying. And Jesus answers again and he says to them, children. Different than the children earlier. That was paideia. This is technon. But nevertheless, the, the, the message is still the same. These are those Children of Jesus in faith who have left all to follow him. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's the crux of the whole message. That's the crux of the whole passage. Evangelism and the gospel is a difficult work. In fact, it's not just difficult, it's mere impossible. It's an impossible thing to do. Take out the transitions. Take out the memorization. It is an impossible task. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's a message for some of you today. Some of you have been saved for so long. Thank the Lord. Some of you have enjoyed the salvation of the Lord for so long and the love of the Lord so long that you forget how difficult it is for people to come into the kingdom of God. Upon saying this, it really bugs out the eyes of the disciples. Look at what the Bible says. And then when he said this, they were, verse 26, greatly astonished. What were they greatly astonished at? Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Because it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been all types of attempts to make something impossible possible. There are some that have said, well, actually, because there is just a one-word difference in a hard, uh, thick cable and camel, that perhaps there's a scribal error here. And really what Jesus meant was it's harder for a thick cable to go through an eye of a needle. Others have said no, and they've been influenced by Jerome and his allegorization. And they said, no, actually, there was in Jerusalem this little gate that was called the needle's eye. And camels, in order for them to make it through, they had to be, have all their burdens taken off of them. And there on their knees, they had to crawl through that gate. Friends, those attempts, as well-meaning as those people may have been, are avoiding exactly what the Bible says. Jesus is saying the greatest beast that we know on this soil there in Israel is a camel. The smallest opening we know of is a needle. And it is going to be impossible for a camel to go through a needle. And it's impossible for rich men and women to go through 
the kingdom of God. It's impossible. They're greatly astonished. And they ask this question, who then can be saved? If you're here today and you have found yourself, you're one of the impossible possibilities of God. You've entered the kingdom of God, but it's not because of you. You may have sat in a jail cell. You may have been addicted to some kind of alcohol or some kind of drugs. Or you may have just been a good old boy and was putting all your faith in your goodness. Friends, you are saved just the way a rich person saved. How then can they be saved? Jesus answers. He looks at them and he says, with men... It's impossible. No matter how well-meaning you are, no matter how much you desire to be right with God, with men it's impossible. No matter who the evangelist is that comes and shares the gospel with you, if he does so in his own power, with his own expertise, it's impossible. With men it's impossible. But with God, not with him, because with God... All things are possible. Let me tell you something. Anybody that came to faith in Christ through my evangelism or through your evangelism, it wasn't because of our expertise in evangelism. Now, to be sure, they could not have been saved had they not heard the word of God through us. But friends, the Holy Spirit of God intervened in their heart and broke up a hardened heart of unbelief that was bound out before Jesus and began to follow him. The P Peter, he hears this and the Bible says he begins to say, See, Lord, <laughs> we're, we're, we did what he didn't do. We've left all and we've followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you that no one who's left house, brothers, or sisters, father, pay attention to that, or mother, or children, or lands for my sake in the gospels. There's no one who's done that who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said, you leave house, you leave brothers, you leave sisters, you leave mother, you leave children for my sake, you'll have all the more in the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I just want to amen that because thank the Lord it doesn't say mother-in-laws. Amen? Oh, I mean, you just have a... No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding, okay? You'll have hundreds of mothers and brothers and sisters, but notice, although you forsake father, he doesn't mention hundreds of fathers. You know why? Because he's the great father of that new community. You have a father, Father God. And along with all these things, we find that Peter and those that had left it all behind, they understand the truth. Those who forsake all, all who forsake, are not forsaken at all. The church of the living God. Some of you wonder, and you may get upset when Dr. Patterson says, stand up if you, if you are not a member of a church, a local church yet, and you think he's trying to embarrass you. Let me tell you something. That man is doing the best thing in the world for you. Because many of you, like I did when I went to Southeastern Seminary, I'd never been away from home before. I left my mom, my dad, my three brothers, my aunt, my uncle, my grandmother. And do you know what? When I left off for him, I went to the Union Chapel Baptist Church in Zebulon, North Carolina. And I still have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And like I 
could ever think. And they don't replace what I have. They just add to what I have here in this life. But thank God it's not just in this life. In the life to come, I'll have eternal life. But in this life, one thing we don't want to talk about, one thing that we don't mention a lot with eternal life is this life will also, Jesus says, come with persecutions. When you accept Christ or when you instruct someone in the ways of the gospel, make sure you don't tell them that everything's going to be well for them when they make this decision. Tell them it'll be different for sure, but it won't always be well. In fact, they will probably come under the greatest assaults that they've ever come under whenever they come into the kingdom of God because they've made the devil mad. Then Jesus ends and he says, But many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Friends, the whole secret to this, the gospel, the kingdom of God, eternal life, evangelism, it's an impossible task. No one, however, can enter the kingdom of God apart from the intervention of God, whereby they empty themselves of their own merit, their own claims, their own clout, their own cause, and they follow Jesus as Lord. Friends, it is impossible for anybody to get into the kingdom of God except for God. God makes the impossible possible. Maybe you're here today and you came into chapel and for some time you've heard the preaching of the word from this pulpit, hopefully at your own local church, and you've known for some time that you were not in the kingdom of God. Yeah, you wrote a testimony on the application to this school. Yeah, you have to keep up with your church membership. You may be a member of the church, but you're not a member of the kingdom of God. And you know God's been dealing in your spirit with you. And you said, you know what? The most impossible thing for me to do is in front of the seminary is for me to come up and be a part of God's kingdom by repenting and believing and confessing. The president will kick me out. I don't want to speak for him, but I know this man well enough to know he'd rather have a saved student than a lost student any day. Maybe today you thought it was going to be impossible that today would be the day in chapel of all places that today you would come into the kingdom of God. But friends, the way you come into the kingdom of God is the same way that Jesus spoke of those that were like children would come into the kingdom of God. The same way that the rich young ruler would come into the kingdom of God. The same way that the twelve disciples came into the kingdom of God. You must strip yourself of your pride. You must stop trying to satisfy God in your own good works because friends... You'll, your good will never outweigh your bad. You'll never be able to satisfy God in and of yourselves. Strip yourself. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. That means he's God. And with your mouth, confess Jesus as Lord. Are you willing to do that today? If you are, would you find a professor? Would you find me, Dr. Patterson? Would you find a friend? And today, you might see God make the impossible possible. There are others of you that are here, and maybe this is your first semester, or maybe you're coming down, and you've got all these assignments upon you, and you say, God, and you've been praying, God, look at what I've, I've left this job, I've left my family, I've left this, I've left that. God, is it really worth it all? Have I, have I been a fool, God, to leave what I've had behind? And you're like, Peter, behold, we have left all, forsaken all, and followed you. Jesus says to you, there are blessings in this life. There's persecutions in this life. But there's also life in the hereafter. 
I hope if you don't have a church home where you have brothers and sisters, mothers, and all the things that you need, that you'll be more committed to your local church. Because, friends, the church, God's church, is his gift to you. It's one of your benefits of coming into the kingdom of God. Last, and then I'm done. There are some of you who know an unbeliever. Who, although you know in your heart of hearts, there's nothing impossible with God. You'd say it would take a miracle of God for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. For some of you, it's your father. Others, your mother. A brother or sister. A boss. A co-worker. A grandparent. And you say it is impossible for them to come into the kingdom of God. Friends, you're right. It is impossible for them to come into the kingdom of God apart from the intervention of God. And maybe today God has reminded you that while it is impossible, God can make an impossible possibility for your lost loved one to come into the kingdom of God. But it only happened if you put your faith in the God that can do the impossible. Do you remember me talking about Ken Bowen, the steer wrestler, the rodeo clown in the 1950s? Well, there was a, an evangelist pastor who came and assumed the pastor to the First Baptist Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1943. That evangelist's name was J. Harold Smith. Now, many of you probably never heard of him, and that's too bad, but his great sermon, God's Three Final Deadlines, was a classic a man who was an evangelist and had a radio ministry in Arkansas towards the end of his life. He moved to South Carolina, and there he was. And who, although I don't have the time to tell you today, had a great impact on my own ministry and call and clearing up the call of God in my life at Southeastern Seminary when Dr. Patterson had him preach there. J. Harold Smith came and assumed the pastor of Fort Smith, Arkansas there, the First Baptist Church, and it wasn't too long before he heard of that old steer wrestler, that old rodeo crown, that old hard-hearted Ken Bowen. And as soon as he heard about him and everybody said, it's impossible for him to come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, J. Harold Smith said, you're exactly right, it's impossible but for God. And in his nicest Sunday suit... He went out to Ken Bowen's ranch, and there he went past the barbed wire fences, puddles. It had been raining. He gingerly went around the puddles there that were on the ground, and there he went, and he found Ken Bowen and introduced himself. Ken was working on some of his horses and training some of his horses. He introduced himself as the pastor of the First Baptist Church, and he said, Sir, I just want to tell you about Jesus Christ. And there, J. Harold Smith, not only a dynamic preacher, but a personal soul winner, shared the gospel with Ken Bowen. And he said, will you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? That old hard-hearted, impossible case of Ken Bowen, he looked with his eyes up and down and saw that beautiful suit, those beautiful shiny shoes of J. Harold Smith. And he said, preacher, if you will bow down right here on the ground with me, which was filled with mud, I'll pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wanted to see how important it was to J. Harold Smith. Without thinking a moment, J. Harold Smith got down on both knees, took him by the hand, and he got on his knees. And right there, Ken Bowen's life was transformed by the power of God. 
None of you know Ken Bowen, probably, unless you are knowledgeable about the rodeo. But let me tell you something. The one that you know is impossible, that was Ken Bowen back in 1952. Some of you are there and you, you pride yourself on what you have, your possessions, your nice suit, your shiny shoes. And you say, it'd been impossible for me. I only have one suit to my name anyway. I could not have bowed there in the mud. But friends, those of us who know the message of this text know that the God who says it's possible for people to come into the kingdom of God, the one God who can make that possible, there's nothing you, possibly, you won't do to tell people about that Jesus Christ and that God who loves them. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and I pray especially for those that are here under the sound of my voice that, Lord, they never thought it, they thought it'd be impossible that in chapel that they would come to know the Lord, but, Lord, your spirit is speaking to them, and I pray that they would do what Jesus called the rich young ruler to do, and that's to surrender all, take up his cross, and follow you. There's other students, that, Lord, that are here, and they're wondering if the cost was worth it all. But, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would just affirm to them, yes, it is. And they, all, all those that are forsaken are not forsaken at all. And finally, Lord, for those of us that have lost loved ones in my family and in our families, God, while we know it's an impossible task, we know the God that can make the impossible possible. And we pray, God, that we would be fervent in our prayers, consistent in our witness, so that we might see you do the impossible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.